Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to do things just a little differently this morning. Uh, So much of how we do church life here at Southside um, is falls in line with the school calendar. Because we're right across the street from a university and have many of our folks connected to the university, and then also we have many families here who are connected with uh, the schools uh, in our community. Uh, So much of what we do as a church just falls directly in line with uh, the school year. And so here, Labor Day weekend kind of represents a big time for us as we're introducing new ministry and um, bringing back some old ministry that we haven't had here for a while um, due to what all has been happening for the last two and a half years. And so we're using today um, to talk about community uh, and to kick off um, what we are getting ready to do uh, with this new school year. And so we're excited. I'm going to be sharing with you today. Jeremy, our youth minister, is going to be sharing some with you, and then also Kevin. Um, But I'm going to be sharing a couple of things with you here One, uh, to talk some about our life group ministry, but then also to focus our time and attention uh, on the Lord's Supper as we gather around the table together. We have, uh, we've enjoyed this weekend, uh, my oldest son, uh, JP, being home, his buddy Jackson, uh, they they hopped in the car with Simon Wadlington uh, and came home for the Labor Day weekend. Uh, And as he has shared with us um, about his first three weeks at Lipscomb, he's reminded me about how there's probably not another time uh, when one experiences community to that degree than when you live with a bunch of people in a dorm. And so uh, he's told us some stories about living. The dorm that they live in is called High Rise, Uh, and it's eight floors And there's about 60 to 70 guys on each floor. Um, And so that works out pretty well, except he's told us when on Saturdays, 500 plus guys are wanting to use the 10 washing machines in the basement. That's when the real community happens, the real magic of it all. Um, But you know, in many ways... Uh, living in a university dorm, it forces community upon its students, right? You have to kind of just figure it out. But the book of Acts here, as we've been studying uh, throughout this year here in Acts, what the book of Acts clearly teaches us is that when the Holy Spirit comes to a group of believers, it doesn't force community on the believers, it inspires it. It inspires community. In the book of Acts, there are two sections that read very similarly. One is found in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and then uh, the other is in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 and 33. Interestingly, the Acts 2, 42 through 47 comes right after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all those believers... And then the other one in Acts 4, 
verses 32 through 33, comes right after a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit after their time together in prayer. And so I want to read these to us just to remind them of us. Acts 2, 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, here's how Luke summarizes it. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want to use the Acts 2 text here just for a moment to kind of emphasize our life group ministry that begins next Sunday. And then I want to use the Acts 4, the two verses here in Acts 4, um, to say a word before we take the Lord's Supper together. Several weeks ago, I preached through Acts chapter 2. And there we talked about how when the Holy Spirit comes down to a group of believers, what the Spirit did was to create a church that I called, it was a church in 4D. It creates a group that 1D was develops a word view. So their entire worldview was structured and based upon the God's word. The second D was they deepened relationships. The third D, they decided to live generously. And then the fourth D was they designated time for prayer. And so when the Holy Spirit came on the believers, it created this church in 4D. And the way for these foundational characteristics of the church to develop on a consistent basis here at Southside is through our life groups. That's where it happens. This church in 4D that we see on the pages of Acts 2, it happens best and most consistently in our life group ministry. The life groups are the means, they're the vehicle. It's there where we develop a word view through discussing the sermon and other Bible studies. It's there where we deepen relationships in people's homes with table fellowship, uh, sharing meals and sharing life together. It's there where we decide to live generously and we serve meals together at the Hope Lodge and at the Ronald McDonald House and we support missionaries together. And then it's there where we designate time for prayer. We're very purposeful. We set aside time to pray for one another. So let me encourage you, if you haven't, to join a life group. Life groups are extremely important to the life of this body. And so if you have not taken advantage to sign up to do that, I want to encourage you to do that today. Go home. You can just get on our website. You can click on the form right off the main page of our website and sign up to participate in a life group for this school year. Um, secondly, I want to spend uh, our time together um, looking at Acts 4 and just preparing for the Lord's Supper that, we have to get, that we're getting ready to take together. Um, let's look just a little cl more closely here at these two verses in Acts chapter 4. 
Once again, what we have here um, is the Holy Spirit working. And what we find in verse 32 is that when the Holy Spirit, this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes on the believers, once again, he, the Holy Spirit brings them together. That's the working of the Holy Spirit, is to form community, to create community. All the believers come together, Luke says, that, and they were one in heart and mind. Now, this is a great expression that was used to describe genuine friendship. I'm sure that you can think of friends in your own life that you feel like you are one in heart and mind with. There's a special connection. There's a common bond. Literally, at the end of this verse, in verse 32, it reads that they had everything in common. Now, this kind of community, um, it's not easy to maintain today. We're very much an individualistic society. And we're now one that's still recovering from a worldwide pandemic. You know, the past two and a half years have caused us to become more socially disconnected than at any point in my lifetime. And so now, more than ever, we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit to inspire oneness in heart and mind, to help create this kind of community that we see on the pages of Acts. Because Luke reminds us in verse 33 that when the Holy Spirit shows up, great things happen. Great things happen. The word great appears twice in verse 33. We see this as a community with great power. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and it was a community of great grace. Great grace was upon them all. So not only does the outpouring of the Holy Spirit create the church in 4D, but it inspires a community of great power and great grace. And first, it's a community of great power because of its clarity. It's a community of great power because of its clarity. Let me be clear to why we're here today. Let's take our cue from the apostles. We're here today to be witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That's the primary reason we've gotten together. The NRSV reads, we're here to give our testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How do we do that? Well, for sure with our words, for sure with our worship, we proclaim in our songs that he's alive. However, listen also to what William Willimon wrote about our testimony. Willimon is the director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Duke Divinity School. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb. It's not a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds community that there can be no other explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. Well, we know what that decisive event is. And does our life together look radically different from the way the world builds community because of that decisive event, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The church is a community of great power 
because of our clarity. We don't need to get distracted. We don't need to get distracted into the issues and into the politics. That's not where we need to go. The church has great power because of its clarity. The reason we gather together is to bear witness with our words and with our lives to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then second, we're a community, the church is a community of great grace because of its charity. It's a community of great power because of its clarity. It's a communion of great grace because of its charity. Christ followers should be known for our charity. We should be known as people of great grace. You know, as we've navigated our way through these last two and a half years, people have asked me how our church has handled everything. And while I am sure we have not handled it perfectly, I can honestly say from my perspective that we have been a people of great grace. And I, I, I thank the Lord for that. I, I point to the Holy Spirit working in our lives because we have shown one another grace with our words, with our attitudes. And here's what I know. When one experiences the great grace of Jesus in their life, it transforms them to show great grace to others. Gracious with their words, gracious with their attitudes, even gracious with their possessions. Sometimes the things that we hold on to most tightly. It's what Jesus says about the woman in Luke chapter 7 when he says, because her sins have been forgiven, she loves much. But he who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Look, you cannot put a value on the forgiveness that we have been given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You cannot place an amount on the salvation purchased for us on the cross. We have been shown great grace. And so we're going to stop right now in our worship, and we're going to remember that great grace. We're going to stop and remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what we do every week. Every week we come and we gather as a community around the table to remember. And it's such an important time for our community. It brings clarity. It's why we're here, to testify to the great power of the resurrection. And it inspires charity, for nothing transforms our hearts and our minds to become a more gracious people than remembering and reflecting upon the great grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. So let's pray for the bread. Well, uh, as Barrett shared a little bit about the youth group, um, we have finished off our summer. We're all uh, headed into the fall semester. And we always end off our summer with a special event. It's called our mystery trip. So our, our summer interns plan it, and our students sign up to go on this mystery trip, and they have no idea where they're going. They show up, they get on the bus, and we take off. 
It's always a great way to cap off the summer, and this year we ended up in the, uh, in the Chattanooga area. We did some whitewater rafting. We stayed in these kind of pseudo tree houses. Uh, but on the way there, we did something really special. We went caving. Uh, we went to Cumberland Caverns down in McMinnville, Tennessee. And they have this, this pretty intense caving experience. When you get there, they have a box on the ground. It's about this tall, about this wide. And they say, if you're going to go in the cave, you have to be able to fit through the box. Um, and it's because this is not just like you walk through, like this is not a walking tour, right? This is like the real deal. There are places in this cave where you literally, you have to turn on your side, laying down, and like pull yourself through because you can't fit just crawling on your belly. It gets pretty intense. And our students crushed it. Like they did fantastic. They did awesome. And this is, this is actually the second time we, we've taken a group. Uh, we went once like about seven years ago. We took a group as well. Um, and each time I've been on this caving trip, we've even got a few, a few veterans from that trip we did seven years ago, and they're looking at me. They have this look in their face because they know what it was like back then. I've learned some different things um, each time I've been. And I'd like to share these two lessons I've learned on these two different caving experiences with you this morning. Now, to really understand, you need to know the story of the cave. So this is, this is Higginbottom's, Higginbotham's Cave. Um, and he's this guy that, that years and years ago, you know, he was walking along on his property. And he found this small hole in a hillside. And so he was interested, intrigued, and he decided to go in. All he had was one torch. He took it with him. So for a while, he's crawling on his belly through this unknown tunnel. And then it emerged into this larger cave system. And there he was with just his torch for vision. And now it's pitch black down there. You can't see anything. You know, there's a point where they turn off the lights and you really, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can't see the people around you. You lose all sense of kind of perception um, of what's in the cave with you. So he's, he's going through in the darkness, and he reaches this wall, and he can see there's a shelf kind of higher up, maybe 40, 50 feet up. And he thinks, well, before I turn back, I should find out if there's anything beyond that shelf. So he starts climbing. He puts his torch in his mouth. He starts climbing up this rock wall. He gets about halfway up, 25, 30 feet. And now there's nothing that lives in these caves. It's too, it's too far, too far underground, except for cave crickets, okay? There are these big old fat honking crickets, right? Well, as he's climbing along, all of a sudden, cricket lands on his hand out of nowhere. And you can probably imagine what he does. He screams. And when he screams, the torch falls out of his mouth and goes out. So here he is, 30 feet up, a rock wall. Can't climb up in the pitch dark, can't climb down in the pitch dark. He's on this very shallow ledge. And so he's stuck, alone in the dark. And now they told us, they said, if you sit, and I believe it, I haven't been there, I haven't seen, like, total, total darkness is intense. And they said, if you sit here in the darkness, alone, after about 30 minutes, you will start to hear things. Your brain just tries to fill the total absence of sense, <laughs> and you'll start to hear things. You'll hallucinate. After an hour or two, you'll start to see things in the darkness. Well, Andrew Higginbotham, he was there for three days. Three days alone in the dark. 
And he was seeing things. There were monsters coming after him. And so when his friends found the entrance, found where he had set down his backpack three days later, and they went in after him carrying torches, and he saw the torches coming. He thought they were the eyes of monsters finally coming to get him. He started throwing rocks at them as they got close. They had to, like, they had to like tackle him, take him down and restrain him to get him out of the cave. He recovered eventually. He was all right. Uh, but, man, it makes for a stark image. You know, when, when you're alone in the darkness, you quite literally lose your mind. But that first time I went, you know, seven years ago, um, we weren't there alone. We were in this, we had actually climbed up that wall, and we had gone onto the shelf that opened into a more cave, and we were in this big cavern, and all the lights were off, and our guide told us the story. But because we weren't alone, we asked if we could sing. And we started singing praises to God there in the cave. Man, the acoustics were incredible, and, and it just sounded beautiful. It just echoed throughout the cave. You know, the dark moments in life, they're not so dark when you're not alone, right? Going through life together, it makes all the difference. And so it's not surprising that when Luke is writing down the first moments of the church there in Acts 2 and 3, he says that one of the key things that they devoted themselves to is fellowship, togetherness. It was an essential part of who the early church was. That, that togetherness, that connectedness, it was part of their very identity. I hope, I hope you feel connected here. But I don't think anyone would be surprised if you feel a little less connected today than you did, say, three years ago. Or if maybe you've had trouble getting plugged in over the past couple of years. We get it. It hasn't been easy. But we want to be. You know, like those first few thousand Christians, we want to be devoted to fellowship, to connection, to one another. Barrett, he talked about life groups this morning. I, I want to take a moment to talk about another time to grow some connections, another opportunity this fall, and that's Wednesday nights. You know, on Wednesday nights, some things are staying the same, but some things are changing, and it's all with the goal of helping us grow closer to one another. The first change is that every Wednesday at 6 p.m., there will be a meal. Meals are, of course, this time of, of place and connection for all of us. And we've been doing this about once a month or so. And, man, it's been a great time to be together here midweek um, to reconnect, to see people, to catch up. Well, now we're going to do it every single week at 6 in the gathering place. And at 6.30, our children's and youth ministries will break off into our usual activities, a uh, meaningful time of teaching for our children, and then worship in small groups for our youth students. But for our adults, there are going to be some new options. And again, they're all aimed at growing deeper connections with one another. The first, we're calling it Connect. It's going to be a devotional in the Gathering Place classroom. It's a time to connect with others through discussion of the word and prayer. There will be a big emphasis on discussion, on sharing, on talking with one another, um, and on prayer as well. There's also going to be an opportunity uh, called WOW, W-O-W, Women on Wednesday. It's going to be in the cat's room. It's going to be a women's Bible study on the spiritual disciplines. And then finally, we're bringing back Friendspeak. Uh, we're so excited. I mean, I, I, Friendspeak was so big for a long time where we get to uh, you know, read the Bible with our international friends at UK. Um, and you know, obviously, COVID and stuff, that I, uh, shut that down, at least having it here for a long time. I know a lot of our Friendspeak people have continued those relationships, but we're going to bring it back on Wednesday nights here in the auditorium, and we're so excited about that opportunity. So there's, there's a lot happening on Wednesday nights, um, a lot of different ways to plug in, a lot of different ways to connect. 
And when you show up here, we want you to feel known and loved and cared for, to feel that you belong, you know, to, to, to get a taste of God's amazing love for you through the love that we have for one another. And so we're hoping and we're praying that these options on Wednesdays will help everyone experience that and grow deeper connections together. Now, I told you I learned two lessons from caving. Um, so first one is, you know, life is, the darkness isn't so bad when you're not alone. Um, here's the second lesson. Don't go caving when you're hungry, okay? Um, seven years ago when we went, uh, you know, we'd called ahead and we said, you know, how long is this going to take and stuff? And they said, it'll take about two hours. Um, so we said, okay, well, we're, our caving experience is at 11, so we'll get there, we'll cave, and then we'll eat a late lunch, you know, 1, 1.30, something like that. Well, it didn't take two hours. It took five hours. Five hours in the cave with no food. And you know, the first time that Ethan Williams throws a mud ball at the back of your head and it sticks to your helmet with a thunk, it's just kind of funny, you know? But three and a half hours into the cave with your stomach empty and your blood sugar dangerously low, you feel that thunk and there's a good chance only one of you is ever going to leave that cave, right? So this year, when we went caving, we learned from our past mistakes. We ate before we went into the cave, and when everyone came out, there were boxes of pizza waiting for us, right? And it made a difference. It made a difference, you know. Now, the cave hadn't changed. The cave wasn't any easier to navigate. But when you're not starving, you can handle the challenges with more grace and more kindness. You know, when Jesus was starving, having fasted in the wilderness, Satan showed up to tempt him. And you remember what Satan said? Or remember what Jesus said to Satan? He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is foolish to go through a cave alone. And it is also foolish to go through hungry. Is it any surprise then that when Luke shows us the picture of the church's beginning, there in Acts 2, right before he lists fellowship, he tells us that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Right there, beside being together and connected, is spending time in God's word. So we too, we want to be well fed. We want to be devoted to God's word. And so I want to talk a little bit about our Sunday morning Bible classes. Bible classes, they're special. They're unique. I really think that. They allow us to do some things that you can't do in the auditorium during a sermon, right? For our youth students, we get to cover situations and questions that are relevant to their every day. I mean, it is nuts, being a teenager today, it's, it's truly wild, some of the situations they deal with. And crazier still is that God's word, written thousands of years ago, it still speaks into their lives. And in Bible class, they can ask questions right in the middle of it. They can voice their opinions. They can wrestle with what scripture says. It's good stuff. For our children's ministry, class is this wonderful opportunity for our children to connect with adults who love them to build friendships with the peers that they'll go through their early life alongside. They spend that time centered on Scripture. And it really, it really is different from kids' own worship. You know, that, that time is training them for worship. It's sharing a developmentally appropriate sermon. But Bible classes, they let us emphasize growing a love for reading, studying, and applying God's Word. Now, for our adult classes, um, I've... I've I've actually never gone to an adult class here. I'm always with the students. But I hear really good things, right? Uh, 
No, really, I, I, I know. I know the amount of time and effort that our, our team puts into planning these classes. And I know the hearts and the thoughtfulness and the amount of work that the teachers put into preparing for the classes that they teach. If you have looked at the bulletin, you'll see that we're excited to be offering multiple classes again for our adults. The Discovery Bible Study is back, picking up with the book of Matthew. Brad Gowen is going to be teaching on generosity in the Gathering Place classroom. And there's a women's class that will be working through Genesis 1 through 11. Now, maybe that's a lot said, a lot of details uh, about Sunday morning Bible classes. And I'll be the first to say that, you know, the church building, it is not your only source for spiritual development. And certainly, the spiritual development of your children will primarily take place in your own home. But, you know, for like a year, we didn't get to have any classes on Sunday mornings. And then we had another year where a lot of us still couldn't be here in person. We lost a lot of Sunday mornings sitting around in God's Word together. I know everyone's favorite time of the day on Sunday is 9.30 a.m. in the morning, right? Um, but, but really, if that time of Bible study has been helpful to you in the past, or if it sounds like it could be helpful to you next week, please know that you are invited. And your presence here at 9.30 a.m. studying the Bible, it will be a blessing not just to you, but to someone else who's here as well. Now, I don't know if, if sharing about our caving experiences has encouraged anyone here to try it. Anything, I imagine, has done the opposite, right? You can avoid caving, but you cannot avoid going through life. Life is coming at you. Successes, happy moments, challenges, failures, it's all unavoidable. But here's what you can do. You can make sure that you aren't going through life hungry and alone. Part of what we're about is doing life together, doing it well-fed. <laughs> And my prayer this year is to grow close to one another and to grow deeper in God's word. I look forward to doing that together. Kevin's going to come and share a little bit. Man, three sermons in one morning. This is crazy. <laughs> better, better be good or you guys will be asleep. I appreciate what Barrett and Jeremy have shared with us. And along this line, I have two verses in mind at the, as the support for where I'm headed briefly this morning. First is 2 Timothy 2.2. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. In Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Growing up, Sundays were always connected to going to church in my family. The process began on Saturday night with a weekly shoe shine sponsored by my dad. The Sunday shoes would be lined up on the kitchen counter, and he'd go to work. I can still hear the sound of his rag flying across those leather uppers on all those shoes that were on the counter. I believe he learned how to do this so thoroughly from his days in the Air Force when he was a bombardier in World War II. And on Saturday nights, he eventually taught me how to put a shine on my shoes. I remember mom performing two specific tasks to prepare for Sunday. Uh, one, she would lay out my clothes, making sure everything was clean, pressed, and matching. She taught me that plaids and stripes don't ever go together. And then on many Sunday mornings, she would put a roast in the oven along with carrots and potatoes. And I loved the smell of the house when we'd first walk through the door when we'd get back home from church on those Sunday mornings. That's what the Wootens did, without exception, every single week. If you are a Wooten on a Sunday, you put on your shiny shoes and your spiffy clothing and you went to church. If you're on vacation on a Sunday morning, you put on your shiny shoes and your spiffy clothing and you found a church nearby and you went to it. I grew up without knowing anything else could happen on a Sunday. If it was Sunday, I was at church. 
for all of it. Bible class, Sunday worship, playing with friends outside afterwards, uh, roast for lunch. I don't ever remember given a choice, being given a choice whether to stay home or go to church. I don't remember arguing about not wanting to go. Going to church seemed as incontrovertible as death and taxes and homework. When I turned 18 and headed off to college, my parents accompanied me to Bowling Green. We moved my stuff in on a Saturday, and Sunday morning, guess what we did? We went to church. And my parents were very intentional about that first Sunday morning. They made sure that a few key people at that church knew who I was and that I was expected to be there. And you know what? I went to that church for five years. Most every Sunday morning of my college life, I went to that church, and I didn't know I had an option. This habit had been ingrained into me from birth, and I thank my parents for that. It was one of the best things they could have ever done for me. I didn't always make decisions like a guy who grew up in church should make, but I was always there. Getting to know these people at this church in Bowling Green who made such a huge impact on my life. People who checked in on me if I was missing. People who opened their home to me in the summer when I needed a place to stay. Church leaders who encouraged me and made time for me. Good things happened to me because I went to church. And I'm thankful. Again, I'm thankful my parents embedded that habit into my weekly routine. I would be at a very different place today if they had not done this for me. I'll come back to that in a moment. During our years of parenting, my wife and I, I made a point not to teach on parenting, primarily because I didn't know anything. It was, it was all new. Every day was new. And thankfully, as the writer of Lamentation says, God's mercy, his compassion is new every morning. Uh, we needed mercy and compassion from God daily in our role of parenting. Most of you all know our kids who are now 31 and 28 and have kids of their own. Uh, they, have, they and their spouses love Jesus. They're connected to a church family. Faith is vitally important to them as a family. And Mary and I know it's by grace that our kids are who they are. We may have known a few right things to do, but to be honest, it was God's work in them to lead them to being who they are today, and we're thankful for that. But I'll tell you one thing we both knew to do as a parent, and it's the same valuable habit both of our parents practiced. We brought our kids to church every Sunday. We wanted them to be in a weekly Bible class so they could hear the stories of this amazing God who loved them deeply. We wanted them to have friends whose parents care about faith in Jesus. We wanted our kids to be in relationships with other adults who they could learn from. Jenna, our daughter, still talks about Miss Lee's homemade biscuits. And Zach and I still laugh about the time Jim Heinerman, he was helping him out with pitching. He was just starting to get into this baseball thing. And after the first few throws, Jim says to, to Zach, show me your knuck. Well, I don't think Zach had a knuck. And so we've laughed about that. You didn't laugh much, but we did for a long time. We've laughed. We still laugh about that. And then there's the candy man who always sat right over here, Don Howard. You know, Don would have a pocket full of Smarties, and he would give our kids a hug, and he would tell them that he loved them and give them an encouraging word. Those relationships our kids have with people in this church family shaped their lives. Our kids are who they are because of you. You love them. You gave them a place to belong. You showed them Jesus. And I'm guessing neither of them knew going to church on Sunday was optional. 
I'm guessing their kids will likewise be trained in this habit. That's 2 Timothy 2.2 2 in real life. Take what you've learned and teach it to others who will teach others. And I know, they know, good things happen when you go to church. Now, what I, what I feel a need to say next, um, I may be taking a walk out of the plank. So far, you know, it's just been kind of nice, fluffy stuff, and I've not said anything real challenging. Um, but I hope I have enough relational capital with you that you don't shove me into the shark-infested waters. What I want to say, I don't have statistical support, uh, but I do have decades of personal observation. When I was spending uh, my time here on this ministry staff, uh, primarily with college students, on occasion, I would get a call from a parent or a grandparent, and they would express to me how concerned they were over their child or their grandchild, who is now a student at the University of Kentucky. And they had a simple request, go find my child and get them in church. Oh, and by the way, don't tell them I called. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nearly impossible request. But I assured them I would try, and I always tried. And I don't recall a single success story over 30-some years of doing that. Christian parents of high school seniors have a common fear as their babies go off to college. Will their faith survive? Will it at least, will, it, will their faith thrive? Or will it at least survive? Will the moral training they've received withstand the cultural pressures they will face? Will they choose friends who follow Jesus? These are very real and justifiable fears. We, we can make some serious personal mistakes in college, which lead to great remorse and regret and even shame. And none of us wants that for our kids. And again, I don't have empirical evidence, but I do have a lot of experience hanging out with college students. And here's what I know to be true. An 18-year-old who's developed the habit of getting up on a Sunday morning and physically going to church, to a church building, of interacting with a church family, of being exposed to weekly teaching from the Word of God, that 18-year-old is considerably more likely to find a church to go to when they're out of the house and they're on their own. The 18-year-old who doesn't have that healthy habit of going to church on a Sunday is highly unlikely to make that choice when they are out of the house and on their own. So let me take a step back from that. My guess is that a young elementary student who's not taken to church by their parents, that young child is not very likely to want to plug into a youth ministry or a middle school Bible class or a high school uh, ministry at all when, when they get older. This healthy habit of going to church starts early in life and continues through the school years leading up to college age. Good things happen when you go to church at any age. As a kid growing up, if, if you're not in a third grade Sunday school class or in a middle school Bible class or a high school youth ministry consistently on a Sunday morning like we have available here, this is what that child and family misses out on. Listen to this. A weekly thoughtful curriculum of Bible training. A well-developed reverence for God's word over time. A network of committed Jesus-following adults to, to observe and emulate and engage. Another voice in their ears which consistently supports your moral, ethical, and spiritual training at home. A group of friends whose parents are in this faith training journey with you. An environment where they have the opportunity for intentional, life-shaping experiences 
as well as wholesome fun, like going to Croatia and crawling through a cave. Coaching in the area of developing a Christian worldview. Ernie's been in here on Sunday mornings talking about a benchmark. What is the benchmark? Where are the absolute truths found? Who is truth? Participation in a community with others you might never be associated with if it weren't for a common bond found in Jesus. All of these good things happen when you go to church. And so parents, if you're listening on our live stream, if you're here, you need to get your kids here on Sunday mornings for class. They need to be here. They need to, to, to not miss out on all of this. They, they don't have the wisdom. They don't have the maturity to make this decision on their own. They have no idea of the consequences of not developing this habit of going to church, of being part of a church family, nor do they understand the good which will come their way when they do. And there's no lack of competition for a family when it comes to Sunday's agenda. The options are numerous, and the pull is strong. The pull is strong to stay at home, on the couch, where it's so comfortable. No pressure to get everyone fed and dressed and to be on time. And check this out. Surprisingly, you can go to church, so to speak, in your family room. Just turn on the live stream. The pull is also strong to get up and off the couch because there's a soccer match or a baseball game or a basketball tournament or a band competition. And if we don't get our kids plugged into these things, they'll miss out on winning on being the star, on getting a scholarship or making us parents so proud. The pull is strong from your child as well. The more they become disconnected with other kids at church, the more they will feel they're on the outside looking in when they do show up. And that leads them to not wanting to be here, which leads to an argument. I need you to hear this. As a parent, you need to know you're the one in charge. You're the one in charge. You're the one who is wise. You're the one who can see the consequences of the road taken. You know your children will be out of the house soon and making decisions on their own. And the question is this. How does what you choose today as their parent set them up for spiritual success down the road? I'm not talking primarily about raising a nice young woman or a polite young man. I'm not talking about raising kids who are cooperative and courteous and industrious. Those things are good. What we're talking about is raising children who grow into young women and young men who are intentionally seeking after God, who are being changed to look like Jesus, and who are anchored to biblical, godly convictions. So today, this isn't just an invitation. We're talking about the role you were handed the day you first met this child God put into your care. God's church and this family is here to be a support and an encouragement. Utilize what he's put in place. Take advantage of this resource. It's why we've dedicated full-time people to coaching children at every age from birth through college. And remember, good things happen when you go to church. Let's stay out together. Good things.